uh, got some visitors with us. We're glad that you're here and hope it's, uh, uh, that uh, you'll take your Bible and follow along with us this evening. Um, let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into our study and do our review and then uh, uh, observe some things about Micah. God in heaven, thank you so much for this day and for the beauty of it. And we're thankful, Father, so much for the rain that you provide for us. Thankful, Father, so much for each soul that's gathered here this evening, that as we look at your word, God, we know that you're looking at us and you're recognizing, Father, that uh, we see ourselves and help us, Father, to humbly look at ourselves and to realize who you are and who we are and the grace, Father, that you've bestowed upon us through your son, Jesus. We ask, God, that as we study your word, that you may uh, open our eyes and behold wonderful things from it and bless us, Father, in our study. We pray for those who are hurting and suffering, and those, dear God, that are laboring in difficult circumstances. Bless those who are hurting, and Father, uh, bless the hands that administer you them. Help us, God, to be a good encouragement to those who we come in contact with. And may we shine the light of Christ every single day of our lives. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, first our review. We've got the book of Micah, but before that, we've already studied Hosea. What is the key word for the book of Hosea? Try again. Try again. Hosea. Remember? That's right. Red Light District, which is prostitute. Um, God tells Hosea to go take a wife of harlotry or wife of whoredom, as uh, old King James says. And what was the message? Sorry? It was idolatry. God likening that to... Um, adultery about a woman that continually goes back into a life of prostitution, just like Israel would go and chase after those idols that were nothing. Uh, so it was that God was continually longing for Israel to come back to him. And that was a message to come back out of this life of uh, harlotry. All right. Hosea, then we came to Jello and somebody already said it. What was the key word for that one? It was the locust, right? What's the message of the book of Joel? What's the comparison? All right, there was an invasion of a foreign army. We assume Babylon because Joel doesn't necessarily have a time frame. But yes, uh, there's an invasion of the foreign army and they were going to be as numerous as what? Locust. Here's a plague, a national plague that's already wiped the fields dry. And God says, you know, like that plague of locust, here comes a foreign army to take care of. Uh, the sins that you uh, you all have committed. All right. Uh, the next one, a moose. What's he holding? It was a plumb line. That's exactly right. God had measured crooked Israel and uh, found them wanting. All right. He measured them up against his perfect standard. What is the perfect standard of God? It's his Bible. It's the, his word. That's exactly right. Next, uh, last week, we talked about Obadiah. <coughs> Anybody remember what the key, key word was? Brothers, yes, here's the Obed, okay, and then there's two brothers here. One of them's holding a key. He's the brother's keeper. Who was uh, the condemnation against? Anybody remember? It was the Edomites. That's exactly right, the descendants of Esau. And how does he refer to Judah and Israel, or excuse me, Israel and Edom? He refers to them as the children of Israel, or the, excuse me, the sons of Isaac, who were... Jacob and Esau, okay, Esau uh, had the Edomites, Jacob had the Israelites, and so um, talking about the Edomites and how it was that even in the day of destruction when the Israelites were being sacked by a foreign army or invaded, 
Uh, the Edomites are standing there across the River Jordan and looking at them going, <laughs> all right, yeah, now it's time that you get what's coming to you. All right, if you'll actually take a look, oh, excuse me, we did miss last week also, um, Jonah, Jonah uh, Micah, excuse me, so we're here in Jonah, and what's the key word for Jonah? Big fish, there you are. Uh, it's the big fish, and of course, most of us already know the story of Jonah, and so we'll move on from there. This is this week we're looking at Micah. If you'll flip back on the back, uh, there's a great summation here of the uh, the picture. You see the mic, he's the Micah, and he's speaking. What's he saying? Um, the son is sitting there, and he's on the witness stand. This is the day in court. Okay, that's key phrase, key word. Here's a microphone known as a mic, which reminds the prophet Micah. The sun represents the day, as in this day is court. Uh, so Micah's key word is day in court. Micah journeys to Jerusalem from his rural home to deliver God's message of judgment to a corrupt Judah. He aims his rebukes at those who use their God-given authority to cheat the poor, abuse the powerless, including false prophets, priests, and princes. Sin has infiltrated every segment of society, so God gives Judah her day in court with Micah as the prosecutor. The verdict is that she is guilty. Through Micah's ministry, three themes ring clear. Sin will not go unpunished. Judgment will be swift and soon. And once the discipline is completed, God will restore his people to their covenant land. Though justice is being trampled underfoot, it will one day triumph. Micah's name simply means, uh, who is like the Lord? Uh, Micah addresses Judah primarily, but also deals with the fall of the northern kingdom. Um, Remember that the fall of the northern kingdom occurs in 722 B.C. It's very, very important. He predicts the fall of Samaria there in chapter 1 and verse 6. Um, most of his ministry takes place before the Assyrian captivity in 722. There are six primary uh, uh, prophecies, if you want to take a look at it like that, of Micah. And they're listed there for you on your, on your page, but uh, we'll talk about those in just a moment. Um, number one, and that is Samaria will fall. Take a look actually just to the first chapter and note how that uh, theme of day and court appears and how it uh, kind of plays out. Look at verse 2, chapter 1 and verse 2. Hear all you peoples, listen, O earth, and all that's in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For, be uh, for behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys shall split like wax before the fire, like waters before the steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob, for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field. Places for planting a vineyard, I will pour down her stones into the valley. I will uncover and uh, I will uncover her foundations. All of her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. Again, you see the rampant idolatry. All of her pay as a harlot shall be burned with fire. All of her idols I will lay desolate, for she gathers it from the pay of a harlot, and they shall return to the pay of harlot. Therefore I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked, speaking again from, uh, uh, or speaking from Samaria's perspective. I will make a wailing like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches, for her wounds are incurable, for it's come to Judah, it's come to the gate of my people to Jerusalem." You've got Micah here now, again, predicting the fall of Samaria. As he goes on to talk about these things, he's also going to talk about the judgment of the southern kingdom. He's going to talk about the Jerusalem, and especially the temple falling, the temple being destroyed, chapter 3, verses uh, 10 through 12. He predicts also that there is no uh, um, uh, remedy for Judah, chapter 4, verse 10. What does he say? 
Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city, you shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered, there the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. Question. North went into captivity in 722. They went into Assyrian captivity. Later on, the Babylonians came in three different waves. And remember, remember what the three dates are for the southern going into the captivity. Starts in 606, 597, and 586. So how many years after, uh, after the north goes into captivity in 722 is 586? I'm going to do the math real quick. I can't, but about 136 years, 100 years before the South ever goes into captivity, 100 years before Babylon really ever gets revved up and, uh, and is a world power competing against the Assyrians. Now you have a prophet of God that's predicting, here's what's going to happen. Southern Judah, you're just as wicked as your northern sister. She's going away pretty quick. However, you are also going away, but you're not going to go to Assyria. Where are they going to go? They're going to go to Babylon. You know, we talk about um, accurately wanting to predict the future. You know, if you could predict what the stock market, was, stock market was going to do in the summer of 2019, you'd be a rich, rich person. We don't even know what's going to go on tomorrow. And yet here's Micah, now 136 years, as Philip reckoned it, uh, before the fall of, uh, fall of the southern kingdom, now predicting that Judah is going to also go into captivity. But note also that there's also a promise of restoration, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Okay, couple of messianic prophecies that are important to the book of Micah especially is that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, chapter 5, verse 2. Look at that one. But you, Bethlehem, Epaphrath, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet you shall come forth to me, one who shall be a ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from of old and from everlasting. Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 is uh, where that, uh, that passage is also uh, put. Uh, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Also, it is that the Messiah is going to bring peace. Verse 5, this one shall be peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land, when he treads against his places, then we shall raise him up against uh, seven shepherds and eight uh, princely men. As Micah predicts about the Messiah and puts all these uh, prophecies about him in place, it's important also to be able to look at those things and understand those, uh, those prophecies in the right context. And for the rest of our time this afternoon, or this evening rather, we're going to take a look actually at biblical prophecy and uh, trying to make some sense of it as, uh, as, it's, uh, as it's given. Um, the way that we understand prophecies are four primary different ways. It may be helpful for you between the uh, Testament's page uh, before the New Testament's given. Uh, you maybe have that uh, New Testament page in your Bible on the back of that or maybe in the front of your Bible or on the back of your Bible. It may be helpful to look at these things and maybe jot some notes about this down. Understanding prophecies, sometimes it is that prophecies are given by the prophets in a literal, historical, contextual meaning. That is, they were there for one time and one time only. They were to be fulfilled uh, one time, and that's it. For example, right here in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, Epaphrath, though you're little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of me shall come one forth one to me, the one who's going to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Who is he talking about? 
He's talking about Jesus. There's one-time fulfillment. There, it's one and done. Okay? That is a one-time only, a literal, contextual, historical um, application of that prophecy. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 6, he quotes from uh, Micah chapter 5 here. All right? What we also understand about prophecy is that prophecy also has a spiritual or a double meaning. Uh, there's a full meaning or a spiritual fulfillment. There's a double fulfillment. This is where we can take a passage maybe from the Old Testament and say this was fulfilled in an immediate context, but its greatest fulfillment would be somewhere in the New Testament. Okay? For example, um, flip back to the book of Isaiah. No, it's a long way from Micah, but uh, we'll go to the book of Isaiah. Let's look at um, particularly chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Here's the context. Ahaz, son of Jotham, the, uh, the son of Uzziah, is king of Judah. There is a king of Syria who is coming against him and that are uh, 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 arrayed against them. Um, what they've done is they've, uh, they've king, uh, teamed up with the northern kingdom, that is Pekah, uh, son of Remaliah, king of Israel. They're going to Judah and they're going to make war against the southern kingdom. So here's the Syrians, here's the, uh, here's the armies of Israel. They're heading down to Judah to make trouble. Okay, and as they go, uh, note verse three, the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now and meet uh, Ahaz and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. Say to him, take heed, be quiet, don't be fear or be faint hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands for the fierce anger of reason and Syria, the son of Remaliah, because Syria, Ephraim and the son of Remaliah plotted against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and trouble it. Let's make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabor. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. God's giving uh, encouragement to Ahaz, as wicked as he was, he's saying, you're going to win this battle. I'm not going to allow the armies of Syria and the armies of Israel to conquer you. He says, uh, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is reason. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken, so it's not going to be a people. And the head of Ephraim is like Samaria. The head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Note verse 11, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord. Ask it either in the depths or in the heights above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor I will test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary God also? Here's what he's saying. Ahaz, the, the Syrians, the Israelites, they're not going to triumph against you. Are you concerned about it? Ahaz, here's what you can do. Ask for a sign, whatever sign you want, that God's going to be true to his word. Do you want a sign? Maybe the sun be blocked out. Do you want a sign like an earthquake? Ahaz, all you have to do is just ask for it. And Ahaz says, no, that's all right. I don't, I don't really want to. Okay? He's basically spurning the Lord on this occasion, just saying, yeah, I, that's not important to me. But note what God does there in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the young maiden, the virgin, shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honeys he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Verse 16, for before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, 
the land which you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Now we look at verse 14 and we say that applies to who? Oh, it's not John the Baptist, it's Christ. Okay? You've got the virgin conceiving, bearing a son, and you should call his name Emmanuel. He says, before this child's going to learn to know to, to, to um, uh, choose between good and evil, both of those kings that you're concerned about are going to be gone. They're going to be off your radar. Note that this had a particular literal contextual fulfillment before it was ever fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This was a dual prophecy. There was something that God was going to do in uh, bringing about this child that before he was going to know good and evil, God was going to take care of it. But then there was also a spiritual fulfillment in Jesus Christ coming and fulfilling that by uh, uh, Mary being um, uh, uh, by Mary being uh, conceiving by the Holy Spirit and then giving birth to his son who was called Emmanuel. That is God with us there from Matthew chapter 1. So there's a immediate fulfillment because again what what sign would that have been to ahaz if it had just been okay you know sometime later on in the future from isaiah you know now 800 years 800 years later god's going to take care of this and but instead um it was something that was going to be a sign for ahaz that there's going to come a child and both israel and both uh syria are going to be toppled by the time this child is you know old enough to what or before he shall know the difference between good and evil right Questions about that? Comments? Observations? All right. Everybody understands fully about dual fulfillment, right? So I can give you a test on it and everybody will pass. I'm just, just messing with you. All right. Um, what you also find though, is a allegorical meaning or a symbolic meaning. Take a look at Galatians 4, uh, 21 to 31. There's not many of these, but what you're going to find is they're going to come about in the New Testament saying, this is a picture of that, or this means that, or this is in relationship to that. And one of the most difficult passages to kind of wade through in the New Testament, or one of the more difficult passages, let me say it like that, from, uh, from Galatians chapter 4, he's talking about Abraham and his relationship to Hagar and Abraham and his relationship to uh, Sarah. And note how he talks about these things beginning in verse uh, 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman, that is Hagar, was more according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic? Note that phrase. Hagar and Sarah and the children that they bore, he says these things are symbolic. For, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, which corresponds to Jerusalem, which is now and is now in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of all, for it's written, Rejoice, O barren, you who uh, do not bear, break forth and shout, for you are not labor. The desolate has many more children than she who has the husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. In talking about the uh, son of the bondwoman, talking about Hagar, he's saying, here's the old law. Here's the allegorical relationship. Here's the symbolism of that. Old, that, uh, that old law can never make a person free because it was designed to be a schoolmaster or a tutor to bring us to Jesus. He would say that in Galatians chapter 3. 
Instead, now we are children of the promised one. We are children of Isaac. We're children, or excuse me, we're children of, of Abraham through the promised son. And now it is that we are free because we're not bound to the old law the way that the Israelites were. But he notes that this is a allegorical meaning or a symbolic meaning of the way it is that our relationship is to the perfect law of liberty, to the law of Christ. And now it is that we're uh, we stand free, not under bondage to um, the, the requirements that were nailed to the cross in um, Colossians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. So um, there's that. There's the allegorical meaning and uh, symbolism. Then there's also the type and antitype. The type and antitype. You go to Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 9. He's going to use uh, pictures and elements of the Old Testament tabernacle. And he's going to use pictures and, uh, and, and, and uh, illustrations, especially of all those things that are going on uh, there at the temple and there in the tabernacle and saying these things are symbolic. These are the type. Remember, type is the mirror, the mirror image of you. The antitype is you, the real thing, the real deal. We're looking in the mirror and we're seeing this is the way the tabernacle was. But as we reflect upon that and see the way that the church is and the way that it is that Christ has fashioned it, we see the antitype, the real deal, the, the actual thing. Okay, All these are different types of uh, prophecies and the way that uh, they function within the, uh, within the page of the Old Testament, New Testament. And so comparing these things together and looking at, uh, okay, how do I know if it's literal, contextual, historical fulfillment one time only? How do I know if it's a dual fulfillment? Well, again, let the Bible be its own commentator. If you can find that passage in the uh, book of Matthew where it says, he spoke these things that it may be fulfilled by the prophet, then I can take that prophecy and say, okay, this was obviously fulfilled in the New Testament by Jesus. However, I go back to the Old Testament, I look at that prophecy and say, what was the historical context of that? For example, what we looked at just a moment ago from Ahaz and Reason and uh, Ephraim. Right? Make sense? We doing okay. Questions, comments about that? Things that I've overlooked or we've overlooked. We're quiet tonight. All right. Let's jump back to the book of Micah. And once again, what's the key theme of the book of Micah? Dane Court. Dane Court. Who is like the Lord? Micah's name means, and as he appeals seven times in, uh, or excuse me, 12 times in about seven chapters, you're going to find a great emphasis upon uh, the word of the Lord. Um, look at verse one, the word of the Lord that came to uh, Micah. And as he appeals to the word of God, brothers and sisters, we don't have any reason to appeal to anything else, do we? except for the spirit and understanding of what, uh, what it is that God said through his word. And we read about it, and we, uh, we study it, and we look at it, and we emphasize in our own lives, daily Bible reading, and uh, realizing that it's God's word that's going to give us life, and God's word that's going to sustain us and keep us uh, in difficult times. But now you have the word of the Lord that's coming in judgment to these people and letting them know, listen, the northern kingdom is not going to be around much longer. The southern kingdom is not going to be uh, around much longer after that. You know, you hear and recognize that there's judgment coming. And the question is, what do we do about that? 
You know, um, how does that change how we face our lives and how we, uh, how we live our lives and how we encourage others to live their lives? There's a difficulty in hearing the word of the Lord and then asking ourselves, well, do I have any response to this or do I have any reason to respond to this? As Micah spoke the word of the Lord to these people, first northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom, again, he's speaking to the majority of people that are really just not interested or not going to change their ways, are they? These are the people that are going off into Assyrian captivity, and later on, these are the people that are going to go off into Babylonian captivity. Why? Because they're unwilling to change their lives and unwilling to change their ways. And so, um, if you look at the outline there that you've got in your, uh, on your sheet, you have the prediction of judgment, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter uh, 3, verse 12. It's not just a matter of being judging on the people. Uh, you can find their particular sins throughout the first two chapters. But also it's a responsibility of the leaders, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Read that with me, please. And I said, hear now, O you heads of Jacob and you rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, who flay their skin from them or break their bones and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh for the cauldron? Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will hide his face from them at that time, because they have been evil in their deeds. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, Who makes my people stray? Who chant peace while they chew with their teeth? Who prepares wars against him? Who puts nothing but in their mouths? Therefore you, that is you leaders, shall have nights without vision. You'll have darkness without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be dark for them. So the seers shall be ashamed, and the diviners shall be abased. And they shall cover all their lips, for there is no answer from God. But truly, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord, and of the justice and might, to declare Jacob his transgression, and his sin to, and Israel, to Israel his sin. Now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice, who pervert all equity, who build up Zion with bloodshed, and Jerusalem with iniquity. Her heads judge for bribe, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. And yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No harm could come upon us. I don't know, verses 2 and 3, if he's literally talking about people beating each other to death and then eating their flesh and eating their bones. It could be metaphorical for how it was that they were doing, especially in treating uh, these people who were... Uh, uh, Verse 9, who are boring justice and perverting all equity. You know, you ever feel like you've been put through the ringer because, you know, things just aren't just. They just aren't fair. Who is he condemning here in this passage? Who is he talking to? He's talking to leaders. What responsibility do leaders have in order to uphold those principles of justice and equity? Well... That's why they're leaders in the first place, isn't it? Or that's what you would hope for them, that they're there in that position of leadership because somewhere along the way they might have shown some integrity, that they might have shown some character and some concern for the poor, but instead here they are in the pow in positions of power, mistreating people, beating people, hurting people, and God says, I see that. And I recognize that there's difficulty that's going on and there's uh, there's hardship that are coming about based upon you and your responses and based upon you and your um, your behavior. And so now it is that God says, 
I'm going to pluck your wooden images from your midst. I'm going to destroy your cities, and I'm going to execute vengeance and anger and fury on the heads that have not heard. That's verses 14 and 15. But note also what they're uh, saying as they, um, excuse me, I was reading from chapter 5. Uh, note that the, what he's saying that these people are saying, they're still going and they're still worshiping. And they're still looking at God and saying, you know, I know he's with us because, you know, I'm still prospering and things are still going well. Um, they're going to diviners. They're going to uh, seers. They're going to um, all kinds of different, uh, um, you know, soothsayers and things like that. Things that God didn't absolutely sanction. And as they're going to those people and saying, verse 11, they lean on the Lord. They say, it's not the Lord among us. No harm can come upon us. You know, do we see that parallel today? And people that make up their own things with regard to their religion and then not blame it on the Lord, but, well, say the Lord is with us. Doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Is that true? It's not, but brothers and sisters, that's that's the message that our world is being fed. You know, um, people in the back rooms uh, can be as insincere and uh, and as hateful and as uh, um, malicious, you know, to their fellow neighbor as they possibly can be, and then they'll come out and say, "Well, it doesn't matter, you know, what you believe." It, you know, as long as you're sincere, okay, I can be devoted to the Lord and still live my life any way that I want to. Perverting justice, oppressing other people, hurting them, beating them down, taking care of things on my own terms, and say, yeah, the Lord's with me. Yeah, I'm still blessed. Everything's still good. I know that me and the Lord, we're, you know, we're hanging in there. You know, the condemnation for these leaders and looking at their oppression of these people is... Well, it's tragic because it should have never been this way. Um, there is a prediction of the restoration. As you read through the prophets, you're always going to find a kernel of hope. It's always important for God's people and for God in his message to give people hope. While there is still time, there is still hope. And one of the things I, I think I shared with you that my brother told me as I got into preaching, he said, you know, it doesn't matter how difficult that you have to come down on a subject or how difficult the subject is to preach or how hard it is that uh, the word of God hits. He said, don't ever leave people without hope. Why is that? Because as people hear the message, you recognize there's still time to make it right. If you've got ears to hear and a brain to think with, there's still time for you to make it right. If you haven't been living the way that you ought to, if you haven't been living your life the way that you ought to, there's still time to make it right. God's message is still, come back to me. Come back to me. Stop perverting justice. Stop uh, doing it. Uh, uh, start you know, behaving with equality. Start treating people the way that you ought to. And it's, it's interesting to me that that comes up in so many of the different, um, uh, the different prophets that you find. Uh, something like Micah 3, verse 9. You who abhor justice and pervert with all equity. You know, God loves somebody that's going to do justly, that's going to walk uprightly, that's going to uh, deal fairly with his neighbor. All of those things are important, and as God mentions those things, it's, it's what he wants from all of us. 
It's things that, uh, that we need to see, but never leave them without hope. It doesn't matter how difficult of a topic you are, but there's a prediction of restoration. Note the promise of the coming, uh, coming kingdom. Now it shall come to pass, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountain, shall be exalted above the hills, and many people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come to it and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, we'll walk in his paths, for out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word out of Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Compare that just for a moment, and you may have a cross-reference there in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 4. Look at Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 4. Isaiah chapter 2 is one of the uh, paramount passages of prophecy that's uh, listed in the Old Testament because it's talking about the prediction of when the church is uh, going to come, to, uh, come, into pa uh, come into existence. Uh, verse 2, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and the hills shall be uh, and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Again, it's not certain ones, it's everyone. Many shall come and say, come and let's go up to the mountain of the Lord's house, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, we'll walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into, into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Again, you've got the inspired word of God inspiring Isaiah to speak these words here in Isaiah chapter 2, but also speaking uh, and inspiring Micah to speak the exact same words in Micah chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 3. The importance of the time when God was going to bring about restoration. As God brought into existence the church there in Acts chapter 2, as God brought into existence the church and brought all these nations together that were gathered there on Pentecost and even reconciled both Jew and Gentile, you have the restoration of Israel the way that it is that God wanted it. The promise of the coming kingdom and the understanding that there's, uh, uh, there's something greater than what these people were living under that was coming. Yeah, the promise of the coming captivities, uh, 4, 6, verses 5 through 1, 5, 1. We already looked at a couple of those. And the promise of the king, uh, chapter 5, verses 2 through 11. But note at the very end of the book how it is that God looks at these people and pleads with them for repentance. Here's the picture of the day in court, chapter 6. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has complained against his people and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you and how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. I sent you before Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered to him from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for my soul? He's shown you, O oh man, what's good, and what does the Lord require of you? Here we go. But to do justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. The Lord's voice cries to the city, Wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod, who has appointed it? Are there treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? And shall short measures shall be an abomination? Shall I count pure those with wicked scales and with the bags of deceitful riches? For her rich men are full of violence, her inhabitants have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouths. Here's the picture. God calling the mountains. God calling the elements. And saying, I want you to hear this, and I want you to be established on all the facts of this case. Here's the courtroom scene. As God calls his witnesses and realizes that uh, these people are treacherous and uh, uh, full of uh, iniquity and full of transgression, now he's calling his people there in verse 3 and saying, tell me what I did wrong. Tell me how I failed you. Did God fail those people? Why had they failed him? They turned away from him. They stopped doing what he told them to. Is God ever going to let us down? Do we let God down? In what way do we let God down? Turning away from them, not doing what he said. Brothers and sisters, there's a whole lot in the Bible that I don't necessarily understand. There's a whole lot that I wrestle with and maybe uh, don't understand to the fullest extent that I possibly could. But the way that we've always shown our obedience and our love for God, excuse me, I gave it away. The way that we've always shown our love for God is through obedience. It's been that way from the very, very beginning. As God put that tree in the garden, he gave Adam and Eve the choice to love him. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die. And I can imagine days and weeks and months and maybe even years, we don't know because the Bible doesn't say, of Adam and Eve walking by that tree and not giving it another thought, saying God said no to that tree. And every day they walked by that tree, you know what they were doing? They were demonstrating their love for God by respecting his word. But the day that they came back and they ate that tree, ate of that tree, now it is that God's got to deal with the problem of sin, and he does so. He never let us down. But here's his people now about to go off into captivity. And God had told them, this should have never happened. How did I let you down? I gave you this land. I brought you out of Egypt. I Even whenever, you remember Balaam and Balak and how it was that Balaam the prophet was hired by Balak the king to come and curse you and, and how it was that Balaam's donkey steered him, wrong, steered him wrong and then steered him right and how it was that uh, after that that uh, God caused Balaam's counsel to fail and, and how it was that uh, uh, God took care of them all throughout that. Until the point where he got them to the edge of the promised land. And Moses said, listen, you make sure that you're faithful to God. You make sure you listen to him. You make sure that you demonstrate your faith in him through obedience. But now here's these people, as Debbie said, who had turned away from God. They're suffering the consequences. And they're about to suffer some more consequences. And God looking at it and saying, have I commanded you to do anything that's unreasonable? What do I want you to do? Verse 8. Do justly, 
love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. One thing the people were unwilling to do, instead they turned away to the idols that they thought could save them. Yes, Stan. That's exactly right. And Stan was speaking of our responsibility to bring others to Christ. And we who have the completed revelation of God and how it is we're part of a better covenant based on better promises. We've got so much better than what these people were dealing with here in the book of Micah. But doesn't greater opportunity and greater um, privilege come with greater responsibility? That we also have a responsibility to be faithful and not turn away from God, but to do his will. Thank you so much for your attention and for your participation, and we're going to have our devotional period in just a moment, and um, then break. So, thank you all.